Welcome to episode 282 with my guest Michael Alexander. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out. Also, mentalpod is the Twitter handle that you can follow me at. Um, but go check out the website. You can fill out surveys. Maybe we'll read your survey on the air. It helps me get to know you guys and what's going on uh, in your lives and how you deal and how you cope and shit you've been through. Uh, you can also read blogs and guest blogs at the website. You can sh- support the show financially. You can uh, browse the forum or join the forum and connect to other people. Uh, all kinds of all kinds of things. Um, and if you're going to uh, buy something at Amazon, enter through our uh, search portal. And I got a um, a little tip from uh, Mary Alice, who writes um, that uh, I made a book bar- a bookmark to your landing page on Amazon today. And uh, what you do is go to the support the show page on my website, click on the, you'll see the Amazon uh, little box or logo, click on that, and then that takes you to our landing page at the Amazon site and just book that, just a bookmark that. And then uh, it's there. If you ever want to buy something on Amazon, you don't have to go to my bullshit site, see my fucking ugly face, and deal with that pile of horse fuck. Wow, I think I might have. I think I might overreacted. No, actually, now that I think about it, that was a perfect, that was a perfect amount of reaction. I actually think I underreacted. I think I should have been harder on myself, and that's not the mean DJ voice in my head. That's that's reality. Um, on a more serious note, um, I feel compelled. Mostly because uh, I feel like there's an expectation for me to say something about the mass shooting that happened in Orlando um, a couple of days ago. And, you know, the only thing that I can think to say is people who have been denying LGBTQ people rights and shaming them and disowning them for being who they are. Um, I'm not really interested in any of your opinions on this whole thing because, you know, while that gunman went in there and caused all of that pain and suffering, you do it too. You just do it by a thousand cuts. You know, you do it. You do it through inaction. You do it through keeping silent when somebody you know maybe is is doing something that's uh, homophobic or transphobic. Um, or maybe you're one of those parents that, that uh, disowns the kids, but I can't imagine any of the people that would listen to this podcast would be the type of person that would disown um, a kid for being, um, you know, different. But anyway, that that's the only thing I can really think to say. It's... It's, um, I don't want to talk about guns. I don't want to talk about what, you know, why did this guy do it? I tell you what doesn't help, what certainly 
certainly didn't help this guy's mental state of mind was his father's opinion on um, homosexuality. And uh, there, that's my, that's my two cents. That's my two cents. Um, I want to read a couple of surveys before we get to the interview with uh, with Michael. Oh, and also a reminder, I'm coming to Oakland uh, July 20th and 21st. I'm going to be interviewing uh, Jamie DeWolf, who, who's a poet and the grandson of uh, L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. And um, and also I'll be interviewing Glenn Washington, uh, who is uh, the host of Snap Judgment, the podcast Snap Judgment. And I'll put a link up to um, for a place to buy tickets. On, uh, in fact, I think the, the, the place to go for tickets is, um, eastbayexpress.com slash mental pod. I think that's right. Oh, God. Lazy. Lazy. <laughs> Again, that's not the DJ voice. By the way, getting very, very mixed, uh, I'd say 70 to 80% pro DJ voice, uh, you know, Probably about 10%. Um, I know those numbers don't add up. Uh, Anti-DJ voice. And uh, both both of you feel very strongly. So I'm torn. I kind of want to do it, but I kind of don't. And uh, if you could just, if you guys could let me know a way to please everybody all the time, uh, it's the solution I've been looking for my whole life. All right, let's get to these surveys. This, this is uh, These are from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. And uh, E is for element. Elephant um, describes her depression. Standing in the kitchen at 11 at night, holding the dirty spoon you just used to eat peanut butter straight out of the jar, in parentheses, your dinner, trying to work up the energy to wash said spoon, realizing that in the time you've spent thinking about this, you could have washed the spoon 50 times over dropping the dirty spoon into the sink and going back to play solitaire on your computer. Oh my God. That The kitchen sink is the dining hall of the depressed. I eat so many fucking meals standing between the stove and the sink trying to eat as fast as I can so that I can get to something that might bring me pleasure. <laughs> Oh, my God, that one rang true for me. Um, this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Tina Fey makes my pants fit funny. I don't even know what that means, but I like it. Uh, does it mean he has a boner? I'm not sure. But about his anger issues, he writes, There are people from my past who should never, ever encounter me in the woods alone. Note to self. Um, and then this one is by Shrink the Shrink, and she writes about her love addiction. Stopping at a red light and making eye contact with the guy in the car to the left of me. In the instant that my eyes lock with his, I am launched into a wild fantasy about how he will roll down his window and ask for my phone number. I enumerate it to him digit by digit, and he will memorize it and call me the next day. He will bring flowers to pick me up for our first date, and we will subsequently manage to fall head over heels in love for one another, move in together, get engaged, get married, make a baby, grow old, and die. I'm fucking insane. Seven years into recovery, the fantasies have become worse than they were when I was sticking my fingers down my throat eight times a day. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness. 
is convincing myself I'm so alone. why Hypervigilant. I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house and you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. I'm here with uh, Michael Alexander, who I literally have not seen in 20 years. At, at least 20 years. When I left Chicago in 1994, um, so probably 22 years, I haven't seen you. Yeah, I didn't realize it was that long, but you're right, because the last time I lived here was like 17, 18 years ago, but I hadn't seen you Yeah, right, for quite a while before that. Yeah. It's been a while. We used to see each other all the time. That's good to see you. Michael is a uh, uh, stand-up comedian from, uh, you're originally from Chicago, Um and uh, Tony Boswell is with him. Tony is also a stand-up comedian from uh, Chicago. Now he lives in South Carolina. That's right. South Carolina, and uh, he's sh- he's uh, he's shooting this. I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not sure what for, but God God bless whoever uh, has to see my bloated face on uh, on the internet. Um, so where do we where do we start with uh, with your your story, Mike? You're, uh, you're how old? I am, uh, oh, wow. I'm still dating. Um, I'm 53. Oh, we're the same age. We're the yeah, same yeah, class absolutely. of 81. Tony, you too? Wow. I'm actually class of 80. Summer. Class of oh. 80. <laughs> half a credit short. D- does that mean you fucked up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Only a half a credit, but yeah. I messed up. Yeah. Well, wait, cl- class of 80, that would mean that you graduated early. No, no, actually, no. I'm 53. I'll be 54. Oh, okay. Yeah. You fuck up. <laughs> you fuck up. I was not a diligent student at yeah. all, believe me. How many shit gigs have we worked together? How many bowling alleys, uh, VFW halls, Wisconsin bars? Tons of them. Tons of them. I don't know how much you estimate, but I think in 14 years, I estimate I did probably like close to 6,000 shows, five, 6,000 shows, and probably 500 were quality. <laughs> Did you watch, or have you watched Making a Murderer? Yes, I watched Making a Murderer, and I made a comment about that. What did you say? I may say, and I said, um, the recipe to Making a Murderer was uh, one part dateline and two parts water. <laughs> I had flashbacks watching that show because of the accents or the dialects. I had flashbacks to shitty Wisconsin one-nighters that when the dad would talk, Stephen Avery's dad would talk. I was like, oh, my God, it feels like somebody talking to me after the show, telling me a joke I should I should tell. Oh, yeah. I, I worked one-nighters. What I loved is when you kind of worked like a gig and it was like a week gig, but it was a string of one nighters. Mm-hmm. So it was like a week, but it was six different locations. And I used to work clubs where 
I remember one time I was in the bathroom and a guy asked me and, and he knew that I was there for the show because there were no blacks in town. <laughs> you know, often that they knew that I was sure. actually an entertainer because they knew that I wasn't living in the neighborhood. Yeah. That uh, that sounds about right. Um so where do we where do we start with your story? Were you raised in Evanston? Yes, I was raised in Evanston. Okay. And your dad was a really successful was he a lawyer or a politician? Yeah. yeah, he was both. He was uh an alderman there for twelve years and um yeah, he had his own law practice. And what what was uh, home life like for you growing up? Um, well, my parents, uh, they got like divorced when I was 10 or 11 years old. Um, my father, you know, he, he passed away. God bless his soul. Um, unfortunately, he had a lot of vices and he was a womanizer. So he was in and out of the, of the house when we were growing up. You know, they would break up then he would move back in and they would break up and then he would move back in. But um, there was my brother and I at that time. He's like 15 months older. Um, childhood for me was, wasn't very good. Uh, um, my mother was physically abusive. So to the point where, uh, I had to move out of the house when I was like 16 years old. She was still was hitting just, you. Yeah. Oh my God. Was she, uh, verbally and emotionally abusive too? Um, she wasn't necessarily very ver verbally abusive, but she was very explosive and she, uh, you know, a lot of times parents, you know, you, you, you try to figure out something to do. Obviously, hitting a child is the easiest thing that you can do. Um, and But she would always, that would be the first resort, resort uh, for something, is that she would become physical. Uh, and it was pretty bad. Uh, can you give me some examples? If you're, if you're comfortable? Yeah, yeah, I'm comfortable with it. Um, slapping, um, hitting me with shoes, belts, throwing stuff at me. Uh like often and um actually family members knew about it like later on in life I talked to my aunt who i spent a lot of time there i virtually never wanted to leave and um it was pretty bad you didn't want to leave your aunt's my aunt's house yeah, yeah. i used to go there it was kind of like a, a refuge and uh I, I really wanted her to were, be my mother were they sisters no no it's my father's sister okay and she even even we talked recently and she kind of wishes that she would have taken me but, you know, and I wasn't a perfect kid, but, you know, I'm a parent, too, and I always wonder, you know, if you're being abused and then you end up being a bad kid, is it because you were a bad kid or is it, is it the abuse? You know, the way I say, you know, is is, is that children are like uh, like a computer, you know, when you get it and there's no, no programming on there and it, you decide what goes on there. And I think it's the same thing with children. Unless a child has a mental illness, then they're pretty much born at par. And, and whatever information, whatever environment they have, is going to be the product of that. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. You know, I think genetically some of us are, are um, can probably, I think genetically we react differently to uh, our, whatever our environment throws at us. But, yeah, I believe environment plays a huge part in and who we become. Um, give me some snapshots from from childhood or adolescence that you think uh, are emblematic of what your life was like. And and it could be a good moment. It could be a moment where you bonded with your dad or your mom, uh, the light side of things. Do you have good memories of, of your mom and your dad? Yeah, you know, it's weird. I've thought about that too. And as a couple and as a family, as you know, as a unit, uh, 
I really have one memory, and it was a memory one time where it was my brother and I and my father and my mom, and we were at, at, at the beach in Evanston, and we went, like, somewhere, and we got, like, you know, some chicken or something and had, like, a blanket out there. And I remember that was such a great time, and it was, you know, normal or, you know, quote-unquote normal. What I, I saw other families, well-adjusted families, how they were, and and then I and, – and I kept thinking too, you know, over the years, I was like, can I think of another memory that was even similar to that? And I really, I can't. And and as for my father, the memories that I can remember is, I think when I was a, a child, when I was like maybe three, four years old, he treated me much better, you know. And um, and and this is really bad, but he used to let me sip his beer, and I would be around him and his his friends when they were like playing poker and and things of that sort. But as I got older, um, he became way more just apathetic towards the family, towards me. Yeah. Um, when it came to my mom, it would have really just came. To, he was a womanizer and he was very busy because he was studying and he was working and he was going to Northwestern, uh, law school. Actually, he was one of five black students. And uh, one of the students was Fred Hammerhead Williamson. Actually, oh, really? he was one of the students at Northwestern when he was going to school there. And, uh, and he went to Northwestern Law School. So he had to really, really work hard to get where he was at. And, you know, we didn't, it wasn't a scholarship situation. So, you know, um, my grandparents worked extra jobs and my mom's mom helped pay for his tuition. And uh, he was a very, very busy person. Uh, but I don't know. He just had his, his demons. And when it came to me, I don't know if it's because I didn't excel like he did. Um, and I didn't have the same aptitude that he had. I wasn't analytical. Uh, that maybe kind of a disappointment in that area. My brother really excelled. My brother's like, you know, on the Dean's list and, 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 and all that was an avid reader. And, you know, and I was an avid, you know, happy days watcher. <laughs> <laughs> and I dream of genie. You know, I don't think I ever cracked the book as, you know, as an adolescent. Now, uh, the neighborhood that you grew up in, Evanston, uh, I know uh, racially it's a mixed area. There's a very wealthy area of Evanston, and then there's a not-so-wealthy area of Evanston, or at least it used to be. Um, the area that you lived in, what what was that like, and how did you feel uh, as a black kid navigating that that environment? It was probably lower middle class and middle class, um, mostly African-American, probably one hundred percent African American at that time. Now it's it's different, and um, but you know, we assimilated you know within white culture as well as black culture, and um, because we we went to school in Skokie, we lived in Evanston, but we actually went to school in Skokie, and, and which is very white were, area. Oh my God, they were predominantly white, and um, it was just you know Evanston and where we lived. It was just right across the canal bank into Skokie, we, we would actually walk to school often. And it was just kind of a different kind of lifestyle. You know, I, I grew up just like you, I grew up in the seventies. Um, it wasn't in Skokie in particular, it wasn't that racially diverse. Uh, Sk I remember Skokie was mostly a Jewish area, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh yes. Mostly Jewish. Actually, we lived in Evanston. And at one point when I was in high school, we moved into Timber Ridge and Skokie, you know, my, my father made a lot of money, so he was real successful and we bought like a big house in Timber Ridge. And when we moved into the house, we pulled in with a U-Haul, and three squad cars converged on us. Wow. 
Yes. When we moved in. Wow. And what did they say? They were the kind of like, you know, if you're in our neighborhood, that kind of thing, if you're in your neighborhood, you know, it would be kind of suspect. And um, what was great is that my uncle lived four houses away. My aunt was a real estate agent and sold my father the house. And my uncle was a detective in Winneka. And he came over and he saw what was going on. He went, yeah, I know exactly what you're doing. What they were trying to do, intimidate you into oh, changing yeah. your mind? Yeah, well... I'm not even really sure. I think they just were just welcoming us to Skokie. <laughs> was there a facade yeah. of welcoming or was it, were they uh, trying to make you feel uncomfortable? Well, they didn't have a bunk cake or anything like that. I think, they, <laughs> I think were, it was were, pretty clear what their motivation was. Were there sirens on? There were no sirens on okay, at all. But they just rolled up. Yeah. And that was just because at that point they didn't decide whether they were going to be abusive physically or not. <laughs> And do you remember Cyrus them saying any, Do you remember them saying anything specifically to you or your family? Not really, but they were just they were questioning whether or not we were the homeowners. Uh, my father was very uh I hate using this word militant because when you use the word militant it, it it's like if you're speaking up for your rights you were and militant. you're black then you're militant. <laughs> That's, you're a troublemaker. Exactly. You're how a dare troublemaker. You, how dare you claim your bill of rights? Exactly. You want equality? <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was just ridiculous. But my father never backed down from a fight. Um, he marched like in the 60s. Um, he was a city councilman in Evanston. He was known to uh, jump on the table and scream to make his point and um, just, you know, was a very, very strong, tough person. So give me some other some other uh, memories from childhood or adolescence. Um, just uh, just kind of a volatile time, you know, um, for back you? and forth. Yeah, back and forth between my mom and my my father's house. Uh, I uh, had to move out of my mother's house because of the abuse. You know, my father, apathetic or not, he just he knew that I needed to, to not be there. And, um, I went to my father's and I lived there and I wasn't getting any supervision. At least my mom thought I wasn't. Then I went back to live with my mom. And I remember I was maybe there a month and then I was out and then I missed curfew by like 45 minutes to an hour. And I came in and my mom, and she was actually pregnant at the time with my sister. I came in and then she tried to hit me and I grabbed her hand and I gently I pushed her onto the couch, and I said, "You'll never hit me again." And that's she's never hit me since. She's never I've never been hit by my mom since. I moved right back with my father, and I was like 16 years old. I have heard that from so many people. It's almost like they like they wake that parent out of a stupor. Uh, time and time again, I hear some child say, "Stand up for themselves," and it's it's like they snap their parent out of out of some other reality. Well, you know, you know, some people are okay with corporal punishment because what they do is they look at the examples of children that were hit and they end up being, you know, a, a normal member of society or they excel, but they don't look at all the other kids mm -hmm. who beat their kids and then their kids beat their kids and it's cyclical. And they don't understand that, you know, violence breeds violence. It's very simplistic. Violence breeds violence. 
And so they look at all these 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 winning examples as opposed you know ten percent examples as opposed to the the seventy percent who are in prison or or the forty percent who uh, struggle through life and um, because they feel like they they weren't loved and, and everything mm-hmm. else. I'm not mushy over love, but you know I have you know I have a daughter and and everyone on Facebook knows how I feel about my daughter and we're very very close. And it's really weird when you're a parent and, and you race and you wait for this child to be born. Like I loved my daughter before she was she even existed. I lo- I love the thought of her. And imagine that. And this child comes in and you pamper this kid and you you watch over this child and you go from that to one day deciding to physically strike your child. And I don't understand that transformation. Yeah, I'm not a parent, so I don't know, but I I can easily wrap my head around an adult fe- feeling overwhelmed by being a parent. And I suppose if, if you have something in you that you get triggered into a state of just pure adrenaline and I I don't know what else. It's it's the only explanation, really, and it's not a rationalization for it. But it's the only explanation I can think for why somebody would would cross that boundary is that something overtakes them that where where they lose um, control. I don't know. I don't know. But it's a it's an interesting question. I can understand that too. But I felt you know my my kid is a really good kid, and but there were like very few times where I felt. I can't say overwhelmed, but you know, I wasn't very happy maybe with her when she was much younger. But I knew that hitting her wasn't the answer. That wasn't going to improve her behavior. Whatever she was doing, and if I were to hit her to stop that behavior, it, but it didn't modify the behavior. Right. That's the thing that, that is so obvious to everybody else, but I think it's not obvious to the parent in that moment. Um I think it's just a lack of, of coping tools. I think deep down they know it's probably not going to um, help their child learn, but it probably feels good to them or at least cathartic in the moment to, to let loose. That's the only thing I can I can think of. Well, you know, it was, what's really interesting, though, is like, like Mike Tyson doesn't hit his kids. <laughs> well, well, he wouldn't have any kids if he did. <laughs> If you've ever seen him with his children when he had his reality show, you can see he was a loving father. And I just think about my mom growing up and Mike Tyson didn't hit his kids. <laughs> uh, so describe what you were like inside in your childhood and your adolescence. What was emotionally going on with you? What were the th- the th- how did you feel about yourself? What were the thoughts you had about yourself and your place in the world and your future? And or was it just was it not really on your radar? What were what were you obsessed with? What how did you feel about yourself? Kind well, of give, give us a picture of it was it was always on my radar. I had a brother that excelled, and you know these aren't excuses either. You know, especially when you become an adult. There are your own decisions. <clears throat> Whatever decisions, it doesn't matter what your childhood was like. When you become an adult those decisions bad or good belong to you but yeah i think i always felt not enough you know on one end my father's is a very successful attorney and politician and big man on campus what i mean by that you know there's two separate like societies at least when i was growing up there's a white society and there was a black society and in a black society my father was the man 
and there was no one more important, uh, influential than my father was growing up. And so I always felt like I didn't live up to that example. And then on the other end, I had my mom hitting me. And so I guess really, really came down to is I just, you know, obviously it breeds low self-esteem. You don't really feel like you're worth anything. Um, as well as I really lived in my mom's house in fear. I remember when, um, my ex-wife Mary was pregnant with Sydney. We had a condo in Chicago. Sydney's your daughter. Sydney's my daughter. And we had a condo in Chicago and it was a one bedroom and we had to get rid of it and we needed a larger place. My mom was a real estate agent. So we bought a gut rehab. It wasn't ready. We ended up having to stay with my mom for like about six weeks. And I remember walking into that house and we, we stayed in my old room and I felt that fear wow. as an adult. It was, it was, you could cut it with a knife, just the, the tension in the house and the, and the memories and the feeling like I was a little boy. And you weren't and, safe. Yes. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how that sticks with us? Yeah. Well, it's traumatic. It's, it's just like, um, my girlfriend, she, uh, dog sits and she was, talking about and she's had two dogs like this that she sat for one's actually on prozac <laughs> yes one is actually on prozac and um here it has a lot of heartburn sorry but <laughs> because i we could talk about that but it, that, those kind of drugs do that to you but anyway um but those dogs were abused and they were abused and these dogs are so timid and, and they're afraid of people and um the same thing happens with homo sapiens. It's no different for humans than it is, you know, with dogs. We're all animals and, and we all, you know, fear is a very a base thing, you know? So I agree. I think the two primary uh, things at our core are fear and love. And it's hard to experience both at the same time. Maybe a shitty relationship is the only time we can experience <laughs> fear and love, feeling like we're going to get dumped or something. That's a nice sentiment on Valentine's Day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what's the what's the next uh, chapter of your of your life? You you move out from your mom's. You're now you know in your late teens. Your dad is his his life is getting bigger and he's getting richer. Yeah, I move out and I live with my uh, father and my father's girlfriend. Uh, my father's girlfriend didn't like me. She had her own daughter. She treated her differently than she treated me. It was really like a Cinderella situation, but I wasn't getting hit. So, you know, you choose getting hit or apathy. Well, apathy doesn't leave any marks physically. That's such a great quote. <laughs> Everywhere I live with him, he put me in the basement. <laughs> There were two places that we lived, and I remember when we got the house at Timberridge and Skokie, there was actually a room available upstairs for me, but he, he had me living in the basement. And let me tell you something, it's not a lot to complain about. You know, I was a black kid living in Skokie and Timberridge you know, in the 70s, so with all my other friends, I was like Will Smith and Bel Air, and I was like that. I was the man, you know? But... uh it's pretty clear what everyone else is living. You know, you're pretty much living in the servants' quarters <laughs> without having to actually serve people. You were in, you were in steerage in your own house. Yeah. Uh, so, what were your? Did you have demons at this at this point in your life? 
Yeah, I would. Did you have I obsessions was gonna, or ad, ad, addictions? Yeah, I had demons. I, I think I didn't really understand a lot of things about myself. Um, I remember, uh, and, and later on in life, I realized that I really had OCD, like really bad. I remember being a child, like 10 years old, and we had a big table, one place that we lived, and there were maybe six chairs around the table. And if I touched one chair, I had to touch every chair. So I felt kind of odd. I actually was going to therapy in the sixth or seventh grade. By whose choice? Um, not my choice. <laughs> I wasn't writing checks then, but um, no, I was sent to therapy. I think I was getting in trouble in school. Do you, do you remember which which parent sent you there? Probably your mom would be. My Probably guess. my mom. I was living with my mom. My father was in and out of the house. Um, I think I was living with my mom. Yeah, I was living with my mom at the time. And but I, it was like an odd situation because I already felt a little bit like an outcast just for my behavior sometimes, as well as I would have to leave school like one day a week. You know, like at noon or one o'clock, and then I would go to Evanston Hospital, and I would see this therapist. And all we did for like two years straight is we played Monopoly. What? Yeah, for two years straight. I would there I, we be probably had four conversations. Yeah. Did you win? <laughs> <laughs> well, a good therapist would let a child win, right? <laughs> I don't recall. Or them, don't let them win and see how they react. Oh yeah, that too. How do you feel about me owning Park Place? <laughs> what does that bring up inside you? <laughs> and I think he was the banker, so he could have been cheating. By the but, way, I always feel like Park Place and uh, and Boardwalk are very overrated. I think uh, what what are the um, Baltic is what you want. Uh, I I like the ones you go you go down from go you go straight down that one. You take a right, and then at the end of that one is the best value. Uh, New York, the the ones that are like gold colored, yeah, orange is gold. Orange, orange. Yeah. Those are the best value. They are the best value because they were like they're like they're like upper middle class. They're not like that high class, but they they brought in a lot of money. But you didn't have to put a lot down. Exactly, it's kind of like a ten percent down thing. You didn't really yes. have. You know, you're playing. You're paying kind of PMI. Yeah. on it but somehow you're turning over a profit <laughs> yeah it inflicts the most damage with the with the uh minimum amount of investment exactly and that was uh, that's the pro that's right before the uh the chess thing right where you win you, if you land on there you you, you might be able to get whatever free parking was put, yeah free parking or something like that yeah. i don't recall anyway. i play now on an ipad so it's kind of it's a different it's a whole new game it's now. fun but there's too many graphics too many you pointed out that you take a right <laughs> Tony just said I love that you pointed out that you take a right as opposed to the Monopoly board where you hang a left <laughs> you take a left and you have to do civic duty so um, continuing with uh, so you had gone to therapy as a kid it sounds like you didn't really get much out of it no I really, I really didn't get much out of it you know honestly when I got older like maybe 18, 19, you know, I would act out like, you know, fake suicide attempts. I remember one time actually. In, in, in front of anybody in particular? No, no, actually never in front of anyone. I remember one time I, I like took like a lot of Tylenol, but it was like, you know, kind of a attention kind of grabber. Um, but actually I really, I was in the hospital like three days because Tylenol actually acts on your liver and you, you know, mm -hmm. you can do a lot of damage. So I remember one time I did that, and I was in a hospital for like three days. But, you know, 
what I should have been thinking about is if your parent is apathetic, say if it was my father, <laughs> a cry for help isn't heard. <laughs> so your 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 dad didn't really react to it. No, no, not really at all. No, I, I, I don't think it really mattered to him. I think he he thought it was a game or something like that. But uh, I think it, I mean it kind of started, you know, a series of just acting out and, and doing destructive things. Um, later on, um, and I I think I told you about this a little while back. Later on in life, I found out that I was bipolar. You know, after uh, many years and many different uh, therapists and psychiatrists, and finally got a diagnosis. And that's what happens. You know, when you're mentally ill, you have a mental illness. Is you're you're so many different things before you're something that's defined, and you try so many medications. You feel like a guinea pig. I can't tell you how many different. I've taken medications where I couldn't wake up the next day. I've taken uh, medications where within an hour I was in a fetal position. Um, just so many different meds until they can find out. And, wh and what they do, really, I don't think they really necessarily put you on something that, that, that will help your life. Because there's not a cure for, for bipolar disease. You know, it's chronic. Um, but obviously you can reduce the symptoms through medication. But I think what they do is they find out what your body can tolerate, and then they stick. <laughs> uh, there, There is apparently a new thing uh, on the market where they um, do... They do they swab the inside of your mouth, and then they find out what, through DNA, what you can... Um, what your body can um I, I don't know what the word would be um assimilate or there, there there's a word that I, my brain has gone to screensaver um <laughs> what you can metabolize and what you can't and so then that rules out and apparently it's not 100 percent accurate but it, it can help a psychiatrist hone in on what might be the most effective drug for you and apparently it's not that expensive it's like 250 or 300 um dollars well i mean it's expensive when you it's not expensive when you consider the benefits of what it can do how how much it can minimize the uh the guessing in taking meds because uh, i agree with you i've i've probably taken 30 different meds in my life and it's a uh, it's a waiting game and it's very frustrating no, it is very, and I like actually that's that's a real process that they do that, huh? That yeah, they can actually. Do yeah, that. people. Uh, I had not heard of it until recently, and so I threw it out there on the podcast and heard back from a ton of people that have said that it has. Uh, it's a real thing. It works, and they highly recommend it. What if they like swab you and, and they figure out all you can tolerate is marijuana? <laughs> <laughs> Fire one up, I guess. Not for illicit drugs. Huh? Yeah. Well, that's great. Then they're, you know, they're they're making advances in, in, in medication. Look, you know, the pharma companies, <laughs> they're just going to put out whatever that the consumer will, will, will eat up or gobble up, you know. So I, I just, I don't know. You know, when it comes to even psychiatry, they put so many medications out there on you. I mean, how, you know, I literally have probably, there was a three-year span of time that I was probably on eight to 11 different medications. Oh, that's a lot. And Yeah, and um, 
and we settle like I take a, a drug called Lamicto and I take Wellbutrin and so do I. For I take both of them too. Yeah, really, and Lamicto. Throw in a little Celexa and uh, some Buspar, and I'm ready to go. Wow. That's what I take. Yeah, wasn't Celexa that drug in side effects the movie? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, it sounds you, the like one, the drug. The, the one that was an, a nightmare for me was uh, Abilify. That was, and it was twenty five hundred dollars a month. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad it was a nightmare for me. So you you were probably, what, a middle-class performer with no insurance. You either have to be rich or poor. That's yeah. That's how you get covered. Yeah, the middle. Very poor or, or rich. Yeah. Well, this was uh, about a year and a half ago that uh, that I did. And I only did it for a month, and it was it, it was great for three, four weeks, and then it just turned just absolutely turned but i've talked about it ad nauseum on the podcast so i don't want to i don't want to bore the listener with with more about my abilify nightmare but for some people it works great so that's uh, that's meds in a in a nutshell well i think psychiatry is a bunch of guesswork you know for me it's like the horseshoe horseshoes and hand grenades of medicine (laughs) you know it's just i guess it has throwing crap against the wall and seeing what sticks after years and years of uh therapists and psychiatrists um, I just, that's what I believe. And I think a lot of people, they just get on medication and they see a psychiatrist and they make sure that their, their levels are right. And, mm-hmm. and they just don't go to therapy and they don't, you know, they, they, I just, I've given up really on therapy and, and really my life has been good and it's under control and I'm productive and I don't think I need necessarily therapy. I think that experiences has taught me if I behave a certain way. It's like Pavlov's dog where I'm conditioned now to not misbehave because I know that I know the price to pay mm. and I know I'm the only one paying that price. And what does misbehaving look like for you? What has it looked like for you at it, at its worst? Um, going into bars many years ago, uh, I, I was probably kicked out of 11 bars in four years in, for in, in, what? in Chicago for getting into arguments or fights with bartenders, you know, just really petty stuff. And you were you were drunk when you were getting thrown out of the bars. Oh yeah, I was I was definitely drunk. Absolutely, I was uh, I was drunk. Sometimes I probably didn't remember exactly what I was doing. Um, one time I actually got thrown out of a bar though I was drunk because I was over tipping too much. <laughs> what? I had a lot of money one time, a lot of money in my pocket, literally like eight thousand dollars in my pocket, and I was out partying, and I was tipping a bartender twenty dollars every drink. And, and the manager got sick of it. What? And yeah, got very upset at me, and I ended up getting thrown out of the bar. Now, that's what happened in my head. I now, was going to probably say. was tipping twenty dollars, and I was probably doing something else at the same time. That makes more sense. But I, I just remember being thrown thrown out of a bar, also tipping well at the same time, and somehow I thought that that didn't make sense to me <laughs> in the back of the paddy wagon yeah. at and, the time. Uh, and drug and alcohol. Uh, uh, Drug addiction and alcoholism runs in your in your family tree, but you don't consider yourself to be an alcoholic or a drug addict. No, because I, I don't think just because you act out with drugs or alcohol for a period of time that that makes you an alcoholic, even if you have that predisposition genetically for that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that at all. I think that people, you know, people act out with sex, people act out with eating and all sorts of, uh, of things um, that people do. And and the root cause might not have anything to do with you know with that vehicle. What, from what I remember, uh, with 
with you when when we were hanging out and uh we were coming up as comedians i remember money seemed like it was a almost like an addiction uh to you is it, would, would that be uh, a fair assessment that it was very important to you and i just remember you always buying something new going through a lot of money is that, that a fair that assessment money ain't nothing but a dollar th- phase back then? <laughs> i don't know is that a fair assessment of my memories of uh of yeah that's been money like water there's no doubt about it i mean I still spend money. I don't know if I do it like I used to before, but yeah, without a doubt, I spent a lot. But if you know anything about bipolar disease, oh, when you're in mania, it is. I remember <clears throat> you would have like a different five hundred dollar leather jacket every $2, other week. Two thousand dollar leather. Two thousand dollar leather jacket. Yeah, yeah, and this is in nineteen eighty nine, yeah. ninety. Yeah, and I didn't have Eddie Murphy rolls at the time, and I was spending that kind of money. How were so. you paying for this? No, I was pay- obviously I was you know I wasn't robbing banks. I was paying for it, you know, uh, through what I was doing for a living. And but I mean, were you going into debt? No, I actually wasn't going into debt. I was still paying my bills, and I still had really nice things. But I wasn't saving money. Okay. And um, but yeah, you know, and and one thing too is like it's bipolar disease too. It's also a personality. I guess you could say defect. I, you know, I, I would think merchants wouldn't think it's a defect, but it could be a personality defect as well. But also, I, I watched my father do that. My father spent money like water, like you would not, like it had no value whatsoever. And so I learned part of that from him. There's no doubt about that. But yeah, you know, I, I think one time you probably recall where yeah, I was probably would. As a com- as a comedian driving a forty thousand dollars <laughs> sports car that I put eight thousand dollars into it, I was a performer for many years, and I really literally kind of self destructed. I didn't I didn't have a nervous break breakdown per se or anything like that, but really just dist- displaying odd behavior and like not being able to like cope. Um, I don't know, really just not getting along with people too well, finding fault in others too easily, just. Just and also just displaying odd behavior. It's really hard for me to actually define what it is. But I will tell you this: that were got, you not were you not showing up for gigs? Were you telling people off? Were oh, you I remember isolating. One, what, I remember. What were you doing? I remember one time I wasn't able to cope with things that people would normally be able to cope with, like breakups and relationship problems. And, and, remember, and so, what would you do? How did you not cope? Oh, I remember one time, and it was a really an awful thing that I did. I was working a gig, and I was out of town, and I was actually driving the headliner. Now, I didn't want to, and I told the booker over and over again, and he kind of forced it on me. And I was having problems with my girlfriend at the time. And we did one night at the gig, and then we were going to go do, like, you know, four other cities over four days. And I remember I just left. Like, I didn't finish the week. And you didn't tell him? I, I, I didn't tell him. I left him stranded. And I was so paranoid about this relationship and, and, and wanting to fix it right there at that moment that I didn't really care about the career that I had put so much into. Um, and I remember, really, I was probably out of the business within less than a year. Because Just, you had burned so many bridges. Well, I burned a lot of bridges. I was still getting work, but I did burn a lot of bridges, but I just couldn't cope and couldn't handle it anymore. But yeah, without a doubt, yeah, I was a, a bridge burner. I didn't really think about the future. Yeah, you burned a nice bridge, though. 
Oh, you yeah. burned a nice bridge. It was even. You you lit both ends. I lit I both remember. ends yeah. and the middle. Yeah. sometimes the and middle. <laughs> it was nice. The, the two the two uh, balls of fire would meet in the middle. Yeah, and yeah. it was uh, actually aesthetically very pleasing. <laughs> I burned bridges like no one else, and this was so funny is that every single com- comedian that I work with completely realizes that he was like, "How did you even have a career that long?" But uh, yeah, I burned many bridges. The interesting thing is, and one thing that has showed me maturity uh, that I have matured is I had a horrible divorce and horrible relationship with my ex-wife. And we are really good friends now and have been for years now, for quite a few years. That must be so nice for your child to not feel in between. Yeah, it almost makes me tear because of and my my ex also will admit the damage that we did to her that she didn't deserve to have two parents that were either at odds or never spoke to each other or. Or, or co-parented, you know, and what, what what made that change? I I just grew up. I stopped blaming her and stopped hating her, and um, I I was just tired of it. Would you talk bad about your wife to your child? Never. That's good. Never. Did she talk bad about you? Yes. I found out many years later. My my ex actually admitted it, and she says, you know, Sydney said that you never did that. And, yeah, why would I, I love my daughter? And I'm not saying my ex doesn't love her, but why would I do that? That's abusive. That's, how is that any different from really striking her? So, no, I mean, I'm going to diminish her mom in her eyes. I would never do that. So, no. And and, and I had, at, at times, I thought hatred, pure hatred towards my ex. But, no, I, I did not diminish her in, in my daughter's eyes and um for many many years it was i had to bite my tongue um it was a, a tough divorce um tough situation my daughter lived in new york and she visited back and forth and she's my heart and i missed her um like you wouldn't believe it, it actually did a lot of psychological damage to me and um but I, i'll tell you that my ex-wife is my confidant she's one of my best friends easily i i, dis- I could discuss anything with her um, I think she did a, a heck of a job raising my daughter. My daughter is an incredible, capable uh, young woman, um, How old talented, is she now? Uh, twenty-three, smart, talented, has a, a huge heart. Uh, couldn't be more proud of her. And and really, you know, my ex-wife. I was fun dad, and my ex-wife had to do the hard work. She was boundary, the heavy lifting, boundary mom. She was the boundary. Consequences. Yeah, I was the pushing candy on her at 19. No wonder she was resentful of you. No wonder she was resentful of you. I can imagine how hard that's got to be to have the the bad cop thrust upon you. Oh, yeah, I was visiting Disneyland. There's no doubt about it. I spoiled her, her whole whole childhood. So, but, you know, so that made me feel that I, I grew a lot. Also, say eight, nine years ago, the comedians that I didn't get along with that I, I had problems with, mm-hmm. I I contacted ninety eight percent of them and apologized, and I would say probably ninety percent of them accepted that and were and they were really cool. What did you have to apologize for? Really, honestly, I think one thing that I did do, and I didn't really realize at the time that I was doing it to that degree, is maybe bad mouthing comedians or my opinion on whether or not. They were funny or talented, which I should have saved that opinion. I should have kept that to myself. Who am I to tell someone that they're not funny or or to make that assertion about anyone because they could feel that way about me. And uh, and I think I did too much of that. It's very petty. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, and Tony and I were talking about it, I think at that time in my life, 
I felt like I was in competition with other comedians. But of course, I learned that you're only in competition with yourself. And it took me a long time to learn that. But you're only in competition with your own best efforts. So would you say that that was kind of the uh, lowest period of your life uh, when you were uh, post-divorce and your career was kind of uh, imploding or did things get worse after that? No, things got worse after that. Yeah, I had a lot of struggles. Um, Talk about that. I, I ha- I've had things um, that I thought that I wouldn't survive. Talk about um, that. I've been institutionalized before on a couple of occasions. Four. Um, just, I remember one time I was just hanging out. Uh, my girlfriend had broken up with me. You <laughs> would be perfectly candid about it. it. It makes me seem like a cad, but I'm going to say this, is that I sent the, the, a text to the wrong woman. <laughs> <laughs> and a relationship that was five years long was instantly over <laughs> via technology. Who did who did you send the text to? I sent it to like the girlfriend on the side as opposed to the actual girlfriend. And it was kind of cryptic, but it was hard to explain. And and that and that night I kind of like I was hanging out with the the other girl the girl not the real girlfriend, but mm-hmm. the you know the one I was cheating with. And I was uh, I was actually I was prescribed Xanax and then took a few too many. I think I made a phone call to my brother and might have said I was going to hurt myself. And the next thing, the next day, I woke up like in a hospital. Mm-hmm. Didn't, didn't even recall what, what occurred. And um, spent maybe five or six days in, in, in a mental ward. And uh, it was horrible. Um, I didn't eat. I lost nine pounds in six days. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so it was, you know, I've had... Did you know, anything, struggles. Did anything positive come out of being institutionalized? No, really, because I I think they house people. They don't necessarily treat people. I think some good ones do. I, I, yeah, this wasn't a good one. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it. And there yeah. also can be good ones, but the person is not willing to yeah. um, change their perspective on their life in the world. Look, this this hospital, I think, had a Popeyes in the hospital with one of those bulletproof little windows. <laughs> it was like seriously. Back, it was on the west side of Chicago. It was it was horrific. I felt like I was like snatched out of like Africa and put in, you know in the bowels of a boat <laughs> and sent across seas. Oh my god! Because they took me from Evanston to the west side <laughs> of Chicago, and I'm not that kind of brother. <laughs> so. And I knew it was a long ride, and I wasn't going anywhere good. Have you ever um, gotten shit for or been judged for not being uh, brother enough, for not being uh, not having enough street cred? Or- Many times, talk, I'm what you talk- call a high yellow in my uh, in my race. Talk about that. And I speak a certain way. I don't think that I speak that way, but. I speak a certain way with some blacks where I'm uppity and they think that I'm trying to be something that I'm not. And really what it comes down to is, is my environment. My mom's very smart and very articulate. And my father was brilliant. So, you know, like a parrot, I mimic that. And I speak a certain way that a lot of African-Americans think when blacks speak that way, that you feel that you're not black. 
it's an inner racist thing in my in my culture. It's it's a really strange thing. And when you're when you're a comedian and you're a certain way and you work certain clubs as opposed to, you know, you work traditionally white clubs and you don't work black clubs. Did you work uh, all jokes aside? No, no. That uh, all jokes have... aside for the listener was an all black club uh, on the south side, south side or in the city yeah. of Chicago. It was, uh, it was South in, Loop, right? It was in South Loop, yeah. 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 If I would have worked that club, my 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 jokes would have literally been aside. <laughs> <laughs> um what did it feel like and what does it feel like when you are judged for not being quote unquote black enough? You feel like you can't do anything about that. What what are you supposed to be? Does it hurt? Does it annoy you? Do you, does it roll off your back? It 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 makes me feel sad for yourself for or my for race. the situation. It makes me feel sad for my race that we would be that we're fighting each other as opposed to helping each other and that we would, you know, Spike Lee in school days, he chronicled it perfectly, a light skin, black skin, you know, this civil war, this battle that Chris Rock kind of talked about in a special and it's like how are we going to get ahead if we're still fighting each other over skin color? Mm-hmm. We we're being we're being, you know, People are prejudiced against us, and we're you know we're being denounced because of our skin color, purely because of the pigment of our skin, and we're doing the same thing to each other. Yeah. It it really a lot of people feel, and I feel too, that it comes from slavery, and we're light skinned African Americans or blacks were treated differently than dark skinned blacks. We're often in the house and treated you know better than you know the field slaves, and I think there's that resentment still still you know to this day that resentment is still there. I just think it's very sad. I do I ever think that it, it's going to I was gonna say abolish, that's a horrible word when you talk about <laughs> slavery. But do I do I ever think that that will be a, a non factor? I don't think it will. Because, you know, jealousy and hatred is innate in humans. So talk about some some other uh, struggles. How many how many times have you been uh, institutionalized? Um, probably two or three times. Okay, maybe three times. Yeah, in yeah. my entire life. Yeah. And were they always over suicide attempts? Um, usually, like me taking some medication. I'm not necessarily trying to really hurt myself, but just being careless. Like the night that I, I refer to with my girlfriend, I you know I had a bottle of Xanax that was because I wasn't taking it. I was being prescribed it and it probably had 180 of them. And I took like four or five, but I wasn't used to taking that drug. So therefore my body wasn't able to, uh, what'd you say earlier? Metabolize. Metabolize. Yeah. It. <laughs> <laughs> was able to metabolize it. And, and, and I was drinking as well. And, um, you're lucky you didn't die. Well, possibly, you know, when I learned that night is I guess the police were, were talking to me and if I had only had either the alcohol or the drugs in my system, they wouldn't have taken me, but having both then mm. all of a sudden, it did was you a tip risk. them well? <laughs> no, like I said, I wasn't even like, I don't even remember the conversation. They're taking you away in handcuffs and you're like, aren't you that kid that moved into that house in Evanston? You look so familiar. I knew you were a problem. Yeah, it was them. They went from, you know, Skokie cops to Chicago cops. Yeah. Um, Any other snapshots from your life that that you'd like to uh, share with us? Well, you know, I'll, I'll say this is I'm a survivor. 
And I'm a survivor of myself mainly. But I'm a survivor. I mean, we're discussing just a couple of things that I've been through in my life. I've been homeless on three occasions. And and, and it was interesting. How, is, how long were you homeless for? Maybe six, seven months. But I actually had a roof over my head. It just wasn't. It was like the why. I see. And I've, I've had occasions. And it wasn't really a lack of money or income. It was because I got an eviction at one point because I was not being responsible. And, you know, when that, when it goes on your record, it takes years for you to be able to overcome that. And I had the income, you know, but it was just, you know, getting someone to give me an apartment, uh, like I said, institutionalized before, uh, you know, been locked up for fighting. Um, I was locked up many years ago, actually, uh, here in LA, I got into some trouble, maybe 18 years ago and I spent like five days in jail and it was, it was, it was like classic bipolar behavior. I think I was, I stole something and I was drinking too much and just acting out and, uh, just self-destructing, you know? Uh, and I had to kind of take a a step back. I didn't perform or write. I didn't write a joke for nine years after being a comedian for a living for 14 years. I didn't write a single joke for nine years, but then I got healthier and what and helped you get healthier? Finding the right meds? You know, that, I think also being diagnosed with something and actually knowing that something was wrong with me, um, as opposed to people, I remember... Uh, <laughs> Not thinking of it as you are a personal failure. No, I remember, I remember my brother who, uh, we're not that close, but my brother who was always in competition with me, even in the negative... <laughs> <laughs> who told me who told me that he was bipolar and that and I, and I and and then of course I was just being really sarcastic and and I was like oh so you were really bipolar and I was like oh you were bipolar and I was like well how did you get over it? did you take meds whatever he says no I, I just I just outgrew it basically or just I just got over it is what he told oh, wow. me wow he's like yeah you remember that time this happened to me and yeah I was diagnosed bipolar 20 years ago and of course I'm educated about bipolar disorder and i know that it's chronic and that you never get rid of it and there have been studies that if you if if you buy if you did change it's like literally 40 years later and so it's just really you know the misunderstanding of mental illness uh sometimes mentally ill people are treated like criminals and they're treated like people who actually did something wrong as opposed to people who had an unlucky draw when it came to a chemical imbalance it's true. And, uh, and it's, it's sad. True. It really is sad. Yeah. And yet there are also people who shirk their responsibility in managing their mental illness and will use it as an excuse when when they could be doing more to help themselves and those around them. And, and that's when I blame mental illness and people with mental illness when they're not taking care of themselves when they're aware that they need to be doing that. Yeah, there's a responsibility on both sides, both society and those of us who, who suffer. Uh, anything else you'd like to share? Something else? positive about myself? <laughs> Dude, I think you've shared a lot of positive yeah. shit about yourself. Can I close here strong? <laughs> <laughs> no, the fact that you're, uh, you know, you're there for your daughter and, uh, you, you haven't acted out in, in a while. You, you have haven't perspe- been in trouble. I haven't been in trouble with, even with the law in 12, 13 years. It's been a long time. Uh-huh. Um, I just don't. That it's not a problem solver to get in trouble. It just creates more problems. It sounds like you've emotionally matured and come to understand maybe where your your acting out uh, was 
was coming from? Is that is that a fair assessment? Well, you know, my childhood and the bipolar disease are two different things. And then also, you know, my responsibility as a person, you know, you know, some things are character defects and they have nothing to do with the bipolar disease and they have nothing to do with the awful childhood and they're just mine and, and I have to own And that. that's how it gets so complicated is because all of those things can overlap. And on a certain day, you don't know, is this a character defect? Is this a, a chemical imbalance? Is this trauma? <laughs> what What is it? Uh, it's... It's a mixed bowl of spaghetti. Yeah, yeah. It is without a doubt. It's a dim song of chaos. <laughs> I like that one better. I like that one better. Um, anything else you'd you'd like to uh, talk about or? No, share? I just want to tell you that just after not seeing you for eighteen years, you're just as attractive as you were. <laughs> just wanted to let you know you look striking. Actually, you kind of have like that George Clooney kind of like that gray coming in and very handsome man. D- Tony, would you put on some music, some yeah. something? I like Love so, Ballad by LTD. Can you put that on? Michael and I can. Actually, I'd like the Commodores once, twice, three times a lady. I think but, but I will tell you, because at this point, I don't have to kiss your butt because the interview is over almost. But you are always one of my favorite comedians, always so smart. And what's interesting is I remember when I first met you. And do you know why? Mm-mm. Because I was headlining a show. And I think Joni Byford this, this Joni woman, this, was yeah, she, the booker. Yeah, I guess you could say Joni Byford was a booker. And I was closing and I was headlining it. Never seen you before. And you blew me off the stage. Oh, dude, I'm sorry. You blew me off the stage. And I, I just went, I'm going to always hate that guy. <laughs> But you've gotten over it. Yes, I, well, dude, I always have fond memories of you, and you made me laugh, and uh, and I always enjoyed your your company. You were you were always a good soul in uh, in my book. Well, thank you, and you're right, and you're. I, without, I literally do not have a single unfond memory of of you. I don't with you either. And that was the weird thing is that there were certain comedians that I got along with, just like Tony. Tony Boswell, great comic. And and I've gotten along and never had any conflict with Tony or with you or many, many comedians. And there were just some that I did. But there were too many. And when you have a problem and it's many and it's just you, (laughs) you know what I mean? Then it's just you. (laughs) Yes. And it took me a long time to learn that. I have been in relationships with women where everything was going well and I felt uncomfortable. Was it that you felt like the other shoe was going to drop so I'm going to make it drop? No, because it was alien to me. Oh. It didn't feel like home. That makes sense. That makes sense. It's what you're used to, even if it's negative. Yeah, like this Christmas tree is bare. Let's put an ornament on it that I recognize. Yeah. A little chaos. Right. Exactly. A little resentment. ornament, it would be another woman. <laughs> oh, man, we got to end on that. That was such a <laughs> fucked up moment to end on. Uh, Michael, if people want to get a hold of you or, uh, you know, is there a website? Is there a Twitter handle? Well, after this podcast, no one's going to want to get a hold of me. But uh, you would be surprised. <laughs> yeah, you would be surprised. <laughs> um, I would say uh, you can get a hold of me on Facebook under Michael Alexander. I have an open Facebook page. Uh, I have a Twitter page as well. What's your Twitter handle? Um, I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll find it out and we'll put it on the website. But for, I just started a production this. company. It's called. Uh, Funny since 1985 productions, and we're working on a couple of projects. And you're you're doing a documentary right now about the Chicago comedy scene. Do you know what it's going to be called? Yeah, it's called Laugh Till You're Winded. 
Laugh to your winded. It's a play off of the Windy City. And, yeah, yeah. And, you know, laughing to your winded. And we're filming, and we'll be interviewing actually you um, this week. And um, we've interviewed 70, 80 comedians, club owners, writers, <laughs> producers. And it's a very exciting project that uh, my friend Tony Boswell is, is an associate producer on and helping me a lot. And Dwayne Kennedy is a producer on it. And um, I, I'm just loving it. It's like a big reunion. You know, um, and the comedians are really behind it, which is great. So, yeah. well, buddy, thank you for uh, for coming by and uh, sharing your story with us. And no problem. And it's great to see you. No, and it's great to see you too. And and thank you for the bottled water. You're welcome. I'm going to charge you for that, though. Okay. Well, <laughs> uh, now we're going to have an altercation. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Paul. Many, many thanks to uh, to Michael. And uh, as I said, we'll have those, if you want to uh, connect to him, we'll have those links uh, up on our website. Before I get to some surveys, I want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways to support the podcast, if you feel so inclined. Uh, you can go to our website, metalpod.com, and you can make a one-time PayPal donation, or my favorite, uh, become a monthly donor. You can do it for as little as five bucks a month, and it makes a huge difference. Uh, it helps keep the podcast going. Uh, we still need donations very much so, and um, any any bit helps. Um, you can also uh, shop at Amazon by entering through our search portal, and then... Uh, They'll give us a little bit of money, and it doesn't make what you're buying any more expensive. Uh, that helps out. And uh, writing something nice on iTunes, giving us a good rating, that helps boost our ranking. Sometimes we get people from that. And spreading the word through social media, that's all, uh, also a, a really big way that you can you can help the podcast. So any of those would be great. And if you don't want to do any of them, you know what? Fuck you. Fuck you. Get back on the bus. I know you took the bus here. I know it. Get back on the bus. And shut your fucking mouth. I don't like where this is going. I. <laughs> There's as a comedian, like you get a sense in your body when like the adrenaline of a joke that's going to pay off is going and it just dissipated. It was. <laughs> oh, I so want to go back and re-record over this horribleness. And yes, I know from your emails, I should be nicer to myself. Well, good fucking luck. You aren't either, so you're a hypocrite. Yeah, I always love that on the survey, somebody will write, you know, I, you know, I bang my head against the wall and, uh, you know, I do this and I do that and I'm an ugly piece of shit. And then any comments that make the podcast better, Paul, don't be so hard on yourself. All right. Uh, let's get to some surveys. This is from uh, the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by a 15-year-old girl uh, who calls herself Mathlete, and she um, was ra she's gay. Uh, she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. I would call it more than that. Uh, she's never been sexually abused. Um, not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused, and she writes, I think I may have experienced some childhood emotional neglect. My father is a workaholic lawyer who can, I can only talk to about politics and his job. My mother is a pharmacist. She's all right. I think I distanced myself from them. So if I experienced childhood emotional neglect, it was my fault. No, no, it was not. Um, a child, this is my opinion, not a professional, but my opinion is if you feel distance between yourself and the parent and it doesn't feel safe to go to them, that's because that safety foundation wasn't laid for you 
as a child by that parent. Continuing. Um, also, my younger sister is a bit of a problem child for my parents. She is 11 and still throws temper tantrums, so I have always just looked after myself while my mom deals with my sister and brother. I have memories of being upset and storming up to my room, making as much noise as possible so my mom would come up to my room and talk to me. I don't remember her ever doing it, though. Now I have trouble identifying my emotions, and I have a constant low-grade depression uh, for years. I also have problems relating to other people's relationships with their parents because I feel like I don't really have one with my parents at all. I may also experience some physical and emotional abuse for my sister. As I said earlier, she is 11, so I don't know if it counts because she is a child and younger than me. I'm 15. She throws temper tantrums. Temper tantrums almost daily and often starts hitting and kicking me, my brother or my mom, uh, and throwing things at us. Um, darkest thoughts. Um, my deepest but not necessarily darkest thought is that I have a huge crush on the goalkeeper of my high school soccer team. This would never work because she is three years older than me. No one knows I like girls. I have never talked to her outside of soccer, and I think she finds me annoying. If anyone found out, I would probably be shunned by all my friends and possibly sent off to some crazy Christian straight conversion camp. My darkest thoughts are my planned suicide. A year from when I first started to plan it, um, a year from when I first started to plan it, I will go through with it unless things get a whole lot better soon. I plan to take a whole bottle of sleeping pills, slit my wrist, then hang myself off the side of a bridge over the river just to make sure I actually die the first time. Um, anyway, I'm going to continue and then I'll, I'll comment on this uh, later. Uh, Darkest secrets. Uh, this is not very deep or dark. I fake sick whenever I feel too anxious or depressed to go to something. If I feel like I will have a panic attack in the middle of soccer practice, uh, I can get out of it if I tell my mom I have a migraine. If I have to get a present, give a presentation in front of the class uh, and the world will literally implode, if I have to do, to do it today, I can usually put the thermometer in hot water so it looks like I have a fever. Um... What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? And this is one of the reasons I wanted to read this. To my dad, I really don't care about the new prime minister or the trial you are working on. Just come to my soccer game once, even if it's at the same time as my brother's football game. Because I don't give a shit about politics. I just want you to care as much about me as you do about my brother or your work. To my mom... Please leave me alone because my mom scares the shit out of me and I don't know why. I just want her out of my life. And then in parentheses, for absolutely no reason. To my brain, just let me be happy and carefree for one fucking year so I won't have to kill myself to get away. What, if anything, do you wish for? Uh, I wish that I had a relationship with my parents, but most of all, I wish that I could see a therapist. I don't care if nothing else happens just as long as I get an opportunity to get help. Have you shared these things with others? No, I can't talk to anyone about anything. How do you feel after writing these things down? Really good, but also scared that someone I know will read this, and even though it's anonymous, they will know it is me. I also feel like I didn't do it right. Um, uh, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Music doesn't make everything go away, but it does make it a lot easier to ignore the screaming from down the hall. 
That is fantastic. Um, that, not the, the the rest of it. And by the way, you did do it right. You poured your heart out into into this. And I think every listener right now just wants to give you a hug and um, <laughs> adopt you. Um, hang in there. You're 15. You're almost 18. Your parents are not equipped to give you what you need. And they will probably not change, but you can. And it's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight. And these feelings of wanting to be dead will pass. Um, or like a lot of us, they come and they go. But you know, the one constant in the universe is that things change. And how you feel about your situation will change. And especially if you get help. Um, you might try talking to a counselor at school. You might try asking your parents if you can talk to a, a therapist. But um, you are so much more emotionally intelligent at 15 than many adults are. And that, that is why I wanted to read your survey. Uh, because that's, that's something to hold on to. Emotional intelligence and, and a desire to norm, know more emotional intelligence is the thing that saves us. You already have inside you the thing that will save you, which is a desire to get better, a desire to get help. That's huge. That's huge. And I'm glad, I'm glad that you emailed me. And um, maybe, a, maybe a support group for, um, for teens. I don't know. Um, but your parents are not giving you the attention that you deserve. And well, you know that. I don't need to tell you that. But um, just sending you a hug. You sound like a great kid. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by book nerd Jen. And about her depression, uh, she has a PMDD depression, which is a post... Uh, why am I blanking on the name? Um, <laughs> we'll say post-mortem. Um, Oh, Jesus Christ. I forget the name of it. For a week every month, I am sure my life is meaningless. I see no reason to get off my floor. For the other three weeks, I dread the bad one. About alcoholism and drug addiction, she writes, Ambien addiction. I need the Ambien to sleep, but if I take it at work, I won't remember how horrible my job really is. When can I refill my script? A snapshot from her life. I tell my doc I'm anxious. I'm an anxious mess and can't sleep. He says, he says take an antidepressant and get some good sleep. Uh, you'll be fine. Here's six months of Ambien. I think you'll like it. Man, was he right about that last part. I have holes in my memory from that six months, like Swiss cheese. What might have happened to me? I want to strangle your doctor. Ambien is not a long-term solution. To depression. You know, Ambien it can be used uh, to either to aid with sleep or, or you know, for some type of crisis happening. But for, um, for being an anxious mess, uh, you know, as you said you are, Ambien is, is, is not a long-term solution. And 
uh, go see a psychiatrist. Uh, you said it was your doctor. I'm assuming this is not a psychiatrist. But um, first of all, uh, benzos, which is what Ambien is, are incredibly addicting, and the withdrawal from them uh, can be fatal if you do it too quickly. So this is some serious shit. And um, give me your doctor's address so I can go fucking slap him. All right. This is from the Being Hospitalized survey, and I thought it was uh, pretty apropos um, given what happened uh, in Orlando uh, to read this one because, you know, I read this a couple of days after after what happened, and um, I just feel like this this is related to that in some way. Now, I could be wrong, not to that the specific thing, but the to the the rage and the anger and the and the now I'm over explaining it. Anyway, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself um, Von Wolfie and uh, she's pansexual. She's in her 30s. And um, why were you hospitalized? Uh, A couple of years ago, I went through one of the most difficult times uh, of my life. Well, first, a little backstory. When I was 17 years old, I was kicked out of my family's home for being gay. As a result, I ended up homeless and trying to finish my senior year of high school. Friends offered to let me stay at their house for a few days at a time. Sometimes I would sneak into a shed or garage or an unlocked car to to sleep, and other times I would find myself in the woods with a sleeping bag. During this time, I ended up escaping into drugs, and one night found myself passed out at uh, a party of some people I barely knew. The next thing I remember is waking up, hands tied to a bed while I was brutally raped by two of the men at the party. The next morning, I was bleeding heavily and had to be rushed to the hospital where my mother worked as a nurse. I felt like the incident was my fault and begged the staff not to tell my mother what happened. Flash forward to 2014. I'm 33 years old, and I find out my mother has been cheating on my father with a woman. Holy Freud, right? All these years, she made me feel shameful for being queer when she herself had feelings for women as well. While talking to my sister about it, she confessed to me that my mother had known about my rape and told my sister, she's such a slut, she deserves everything she gets. Little did my mother know, it was the first time I had ever had sex with men. This triggered something in me, and I started to spiral out of control. First, it started with extreme anxiety and anger. I called her and told her how I felt and what I knew she had said. She had my aunt, her sister, call and tell me what a terrible person I was for making my mother feel so bad. My anger at my mother then turned on myself and I started cutting my arms and legs. I would black out and run through the streets naked, crying and screaming, and still to this day, I have no recollection of it. I would dissociate and think people were attacking me and write things all over the walls. I heard voices and whispering over my shoulder, voices that would say awful things about me and urge me to kill myself. I went completely insane. Um, and then she was stalked by a, a co-worker and her employer blamed it on her for wearing yoga pants. Um, and she writes, and at this point, my entire family had cut me off um, 
and I wanted to die. I ended up attempting suicide by taking a bottle of sleeping pills and cutting my body all over with a knife. I woke up in the hospital not really remembering what had happened and was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder brought on by extreme anxiety and trauma. Uh, The first night in the ER psych ward was awful. I was wailing and crying and all I wanted was a hug. The nurse on duty told me to shut up or they would have to strap me down. I told her I just needed kindness and a hug and that I felt all alone. I reached out to hug her and she claimed that I tried to attack her so they took away my visitation privileges. At the time, I didn't know that my father had driven all the way out from Boston to see me and was told I didn't want to see him when in reality I wasn't allowed visitors because of some asshole and sensitive nurse. The following morning, they strapped me into a bed, rolled me into an ambulance, and brought me to a mental hospital where I was to stay for a week. The staff at the hospital were a lot more compassionate and understanding than the nurse at the ER and listened to what I had to say and validated my feelings. I hadn't felt validated ever in my life. It was the first time anyone ever said to me, what happened to you was fucked up and wasn't your fault. After the first couple of days, while on a lot of medication, I started to come down from my anxiety and wanted to get out and move on with my life and seek out some patient treatment. I didn't feel as crazy as the other folks in there and felt guilty for taking up a bed. The rest of my stay there ended up feeling like I was in prison and trying to stay on my best behavior, saying the right things and proving to the doctors that I was fit to go back out into the world. They eventually let me out after seven days with a promise to follow up with a therapist. I wouldn't say the stay helped me figure out how to overcome my trauma, but it gave me a starting point and a respite from my life for a brief moment. It produced, it introduced me to some anti-anxiety medication, which helped me get through that difficult time. I'm happy to say two years later, I'm doing a lot better. I'm not 100%, but I'm certainly not in that dark place anymore. Thank you for sharing that. Now, you know, who knows what drove that guy in, in Orlando to, to do what, what he did? Was he closeted gay? Was, you know, his father, you know, his views on gays, did that make that guy, you know, want to kill others or kill himself? I don't know, but I just know we need to change and we need to start accepting people for who they are. I can understand why people, uh, shut up. I'm so afraid that somebody's going to criticize an opinion that I have that, uh, just shut up. Just shut up, mean part of my brain. This is a struggle in a sentence survey. Um, and thank you, by the way, for that. For that survey, and I'm so glad you're doing better. This is filled out by Matt, and he writes about his ADD. And the time it takes me to read one page in a novel... I've planned my meals for the next day, taken a virtual trip to Mexico, including being abducted by drug traffickers and fighting my way out of their compound and had great imaginary sex with the former flame. I've also gone to see if there's anything in the refrigerator. There wasn't, so I found some brownie mix, got as far as adding the eggs before deciding it would take too long and left it on the counter. Forgot the book. My brain's tired. I need a nap. Poetic. Poetic. This is an email I got from uh, Amanda, and she writes, uh, While listening to your podcast recently, uh, you and your guest, Hillary, talked about dealing with trichotillomania. You said you're interested in the different ways in which people cope and how those coping mechanisms make them feel. I wanted to share my experience with you. I don't think I've ever explained this to anyone in the detail I'm about to explain to you, not even my therapist. 
One of my coping mechanisms over the year has been vomiting. I have had difficulty referring it to, to it as bulimia because it's not been consistent over the years, and I don't do it to be thin. This basically uh, pops up during times of stress. I also don't necessarily binge. I might just eat to the point of discomfort. Is my denial showing yet? Anyway, all I can say is the act of vomiting as a reaction to stress has only ever given me incredible feelings of relief. I know eating disorders, again, I have trouble calling my behavior an eating disorder, are often talked about with references to control, but for me, it has always been about relief. Prior to vomiting, I feel full, physically full. Not necessarily because I ate too much, but I feel full of negative feelings. Maybe I'm depressed, rejected, angry. And by vomiting, I feel as though I'm physically expelling those feelings from my body. To take it a step further, and maybe this is TMI, but for me, it is almost as though the feelings come out in layers. Obviously, as I'm vomiting, I can see what I'm throwing up. So I'm thinking, okay, I just ate that, and I ate that earlier, and I ate that even earlier. So once I get to a certain point, I think, okay, what I just threw up, I ate at a time when I was feeling okay, so I can stop now. And once I'm done, I feel like a thousand pound weight has been lifted off of my shoulders. I don't know that I would describe it as a high, but rather immense relief, like I can breathe again. I don't do this often, and ideally, if I'm taking my depression medication and feeling good, I don't do it at all. But sometimes I fall back on bad habits. Hopefully, this sheds a little light on why some of us do the maladaptive, seemingly crazy things we do. Thank you so much for that. That uh, was very illuminating. Um, Spirit Animal. uh, She's a teenager, and she describes her depression. My isolation from others is both comforting and agonizing when I see how much I don't matter to others. I wish I could live instead of merely exist. Oh, man, do we... Do we get that? Boy, do we get that. My isolation from others is both comforting and agonizing. Sending you some love. Ah, this is an awful moment. I love this name. Uh, that one guy you vaguely remember from high school. Um, he's 16. And he writes, One day while I was feeling particularly suicidal... I gave one of my close friends a call like I always promised I would. When she answered, she sounded really tired and told me I woke her up from her afternoon nap, after which I proceeded to vigorously apologize for wanting to kill myself because I thought that 30 minutes of my friend's sleep was worth more than my life. Well, I'm glad that you are around to type this and for us to read it and to relate. Sending you some love, buddy. Uh, this is filled out by Flora Adrenaline, and she writes about uh, her binge eating. I'm making plans for eating healthier tomorrow as I drive to the fast food drive through to binge on cheap, greasy burgers and fries. I'll begin with the next meal. I'll start tomorrow. This is the last time. This is never the last time. You just described exactly what I went through before I quit drinking. My brain would come up with a reason every night why tonight was going to be the last night I was going to drink, and then tomorrow I was going to quit. And it you believe it. You believe it. 
this is an awful moment filled out by Allie, uh, who is 17, and she writes, uh, I ordered 40 batteries to my house uh, for my vibrator. There aren't many of that kind of battery, so I bought them in bulk. Unfortunately, slightly high on painkillers, uh, I... F- I forgot uh, that my mom has absolutely no boundaries when it comes to my stuff. She tends to open my packages without asking and basically has no sense of privacy. Today, I was up in my room playing The Sims when I hear, who the hell ordered all these batteries? Allison? I run downstairs. My mom starts interrogating me about what the batteries are for and why I bought 40 of them. One thing about my mom is that she hates lying in any form, even if it's to preserve privacy. I won't tell her. So she starts guessing. Is it for a watch? A Fitbit? A vibrator? I'm a terrible liar, and I can already feel my face going red, but I have an idea. I look her straight in the face and say, yes. My mom goes bright red and starts muttering about how it's my business what I order online. I tell her that if she doesn't want to have these awkward conversations, she shouldn't open my shit without asking. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, and my fa- my mom found my porn stash once when I was, uh, I think I was like 15. Oh, so fucking embarrassing. Um, this is shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself something clever. She's in her twenties. Uh, she's straight, but I have had sex with a few women ra- raised in a, uh, Slightly dysfunctional environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I always had a really hard time sleeping at nights, restless, anxious, and angry. I could sleep if I slept in my mom's bed with her and did this most nights into my early teens. My dad worked nights, so it was usually just us. On nights when my dad was off work, I would usually, uh, I would usually still, because enough cause usually still cause enough of a fuss about sleeping that I would be in their bed. Instead of taking it somewhere else, they used to have sex in the bed next to me. I know they thought I was sleeping because I heard them talk about not wanting to wake me up while they were in the middle of fucking. Whenever I would wake up during this, I didn't know what to do, so I would pretend to be asleep. Neither of my parents have ever touched me, but it don't feel like doing this was right, and I have told them that. Well, good for you for saying that, because that is not... You should assume that your child is going to wake up. Um, Not sure if she's been emotionally abused. My parents being so sexual around me made me feel like it counts as abuse, but I don't like that it happened. Um, Oh, my parents being so sexual around me made me, uh, made me, my parents being so sexual around me made me doesn't feel like it counts as sexual abuse. Something is not right in that sentence, but I don't like that it happened. Emotionally, my parents had a baby that died three days after birth a year before me. My mom has always said that she felt like our family wasn't whole again until my little brother, who was born seven years after me. My mom was angry and sad all the time when I was little. She would scream at us for no reason and like to slam cupboards and doors so everyone would know she was upset. It's not abuse, but it felt like everything was about my mom, was about how my mom was doing. It still is. That's that's a form of abuse. You know, abuse, neglect, whatever you want to talk. It's, it's a kid's needs not being met. And that's ultimately what matters because that's the wound. 
you know, it doesn't really matter the delivery system for <laughs> for what does the, the injury. Um, and again, this is not about blaming that parent. This is about giving weight to, to what happened to us so that we can um, not feel guilty and uh, sharing it with somebody else and not feel like we're being a baby and making too big of a deal of it because we can't heal if we're constantly saying, uh, you know, this isn't worth talking about. It is worth talking about. If you're feeling bad about it, it doesn't matter how innocuous it seems. Talk about it. And talk about it with people that can speak that, you know, that understand. Um, darkest thoughts. I like to think about the meanest things I could say to people, like pick them apart for who they are and make them regret ever making me feel bad. This doesn't happen as much anymore, but I used to fantasize about getting into fights all the time. I just wanted to hit someone as hard as I could. Uh, darkest secrets. Early teens through high school, my bedroom shared a wall with my parents. They had obnoxiously loud sex all the time when they knew the kids were in the house and I used to listen at the vent between our rooms and masturbate. I caught my older brother doing the same a couple of times. I didn't understand sexual boundaries like I should have and used to masturbate on the couch while watching movies with my family with just a blanket over me. I don't know why I thought this was okay, but no one ever told me not to and I'm sure they knew. I think you just answered your own question. Uh, I don't know why I didn't know so it was okay, but no one ever told me not to and I'm sure they knew. Yeah, I, you were raised in a in a... Uh, a house where there was an inappropriate uh, sexual whatever in the air. Uh, I was maybe 10 or 11 when it started. Small thing. My mom is a poet and I often went to her poetry readings, uh, read her work, etc. She had a couple of poems that were not explicit but overtly sexual about my father. She knowingly gave them to me to read and or read them in front of me. Yeah, no boundaries. Um Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I find pregnant women and childbirth erotic and sometimes watch childbirth videos while I masturbate. I understand that a fantasy that does not hurt anyone is okay, but it still makes me feel kind of weird. Um, and you're not the first person I've uh, I've heard um, talk about that. So um, don't feel like like you're alone in that. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I am happy for the life I have, but I really want to tell my parents that I don't think they should have had kids. They didn't have the stability, uh, mentality, emotionally or financially. Choosing to homeschool me gave me some small advantages and a lot of real disadvantages. They screwed me out of a normal social life and good education. I can't say this because I know they tried and did what they thought was best. What, if anything you wish for. I wish I had been better to my younger brother when we were little. I had awful anger issues and took it all out on him. He was so small and innocent, and I wish I could take it all back. Have you shared these things with others? I've expressed to my parents some of the stuff about my childhood, and my mom made it about her, and my dad said he was sorry. I don't feel like it helped anything. I want to tell my brother I'm sorry, but I'm scared it won't be enough, and he won't want me in his life anymore. I can't imagine that happening. I can't imagine... I've never seen an apology, someone initiating an apology, um, make something worse. I, I haven't. So I think you should do it. Um, 
because I think it'd be good for both of you. It may open up a, a channel of, of discussion. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? I've wanted to do this for a very long time, and I hope that this is a good step for me. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I need to believe that fucked up stuff we do as kids doesn't define our, our morality as adults. Don't be too hard on your little kid self. You didn't know better yet. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence survey, and he calls himself, I'm too tired to think of a good name, and he uh, deals with anxiety, and uh, he drinks too much, and in his words, and um, actually not in his words, about his anxiety, he says, no matter how much I exercise or how much bourbon I drink, I never feel at peace, and then snapshot from his life. New life experience, buying a half gallon of whiskey at 9 a.m. on a Monday morning and feeling disappointed that the guy behind the counter didn't give me a weird look or ask if I was okay. You know why? Probably because he sees it all the time. But I hope you get some help because um, if you are an alcoholic, that uh, that is not something to be handled uh, on our own. We need help and saved my life. This is an awful moment filled out by POS, which I believe stands for piece of shit. I'm not sure. Um, awful moment. I am jealous of people with eating disorders. I watch my friends lose weight through unhealthy ways and wish I could trade my suicidal ideation for anorexia. I know it's illogical, but I think it anyway. Should I call this eating disorder ideation? I don't know why they have to be mutually exclusive. I think a modern woman can have it all. I think that she can uh, have suicidal ideation and an eating disorder. Um, if you put if you put your mind to it, you could probably even throw in um, some anxiety. This is filled out by Allie, and uh, this is an awful moment. And she writes. And this, there's, this one's not funny, but it's just, uh, I don't know, some, something about it uh, I found moving. She writes, last night I contacted the Rape and Incest National Network uh, hotline to talk about my, or the online hotline to talk about my story of uh, child sexual abuse. The hotline was busy and there was a waiting period. I was dissociating really badly at the time, so everything was surreal. I just thought, well, this is going to be a long night. I walked downstairs, poured myself a massive glass of milk, and poured all the chocolate syrup I had I had left into the glass. So I sat naked in the dark, gulping down chocolate milk at one in the morning. I was so out of it, all I could think of was how cold and sweet the chocolate milk was, not that I was sharing my story for the first time. It was the most surreal experience of my life. I just want to high-five you for walking through that fear and sharing your story. That is the biggest of high fives. Uh, <laughs> this guy, this is a shame and secret survey. This guy calls him creepy DJ voiced. It, DJ voice is the best and don't let anyone tell you different, Paul. Uh, too late. Others have told me different. He is... 
straight in his 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. And um, I just wanted to read this this one. Um, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And um, he doesn't elaborate. But it's really about his, uh, his darkest thoughts um, that I wanted to read. He writes... Um, My wife's postpartum depression makes me think about leaving at times, or at least about being somewhere else. It sometimes feels like living with a a shadow of the woman I married, a strange doppelganger that walks in her place and exists solely to suck every last ray of joy and energy and hope from the house. I'm already being the only one emotionally present for the kids. In fact, I'm trying to be doubly so, since they aren't getting much from her. And it sometimes feels like it would be easier to just be somewhere else. I feel both deeply sad and secretly vindicated when my daughter wants me, instead of my wife, to do every last thing for her. I love my wife, and I am committed to my marriage. She's doing everything. Therapy, meds, eating well, trying to exercise, and I know she wants to be in a different state. But every day she brings up the same anxieties we've talked about, every day for the last few months, from whether we have enough food in the fridge to if she'll ever feel better, and of course, why I'm willing to stay with her while she's in this state. And she just sits and stares and can't manage to talk to our daughter or to acknowledge me. It's times like this I want to leave. I want to be somewhere else, having a drink with a friend or going on a walk with my kids and dogs. More than anything, I want my wife back, and I'm terrified she's gone forever, that the rest of my life will be spent raising kids and caring for a woman who once was the best thing in my life but is now a drain on me. I feel so ashamed when I see how I've written uh, that, but I guess what I'm saying is that it feels like I've lost the most important relationship in my life. Man. I mean, you both sound like you're doing the best that you can. You know, the only thing I can I can think is is to find something to recharge your batteries. You know, maybe a support group. I know NAMI, uh, the National uh, Alliance of Mental Illness, NAMI.org. I know they have uh, support group meetings for loved ones of uh, people who uh, suffer from, from mental illness. That might be a good place to, to find some support because you've got to recharge your batteries. And um, sending love to both you guys, man. That is hard. That is hard. But thank God your wife, you know, is getting into the solution and um, and trying. Um, you know, and and something else to consider is, you know, maybe uh, a hospital stay. I don't know. Talk to your. Uh, hopefully she has a psychiatrist that she's uh, she's working with. You said she's on meds, but um, I don't know. I shouldn't. Now I feel like I'm butting in. Um, like I think I'm butting in on surveys that people filled out for me to potentially read. Uh, I'd be like a cop pulling somebody over and going, I'm sorry, would you mind if I looked at your license and registration? Thank you. I'm, I'm so sorry I have to do this. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a trans female, but still living as a man, uh, not out. Uh, calls herself, wish I was able to be me. And she's straight in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. 
Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was six, a neighbor boy, a couple years older, forced me to get naked and lay in bed with him. Don't really remember anything after that other than getting into trouble for going in his house without permission. I didn't say anything about it because I didn't want to be in more trouble. I never could see him again uh, without freaking out, but I couldn't say why. We moved shortly after that, and I never had to. My mom heard 15 years after that he had been arrested for child abuse. I think I may have been the first, so I wish I had said something about it then. Maybe it could have saved someone else. Don't, don't, don't play that over in your mind. You all, that, that is just putting gasoline on the fire and it was not your place to do that. It was, it, it was his, the responsibility on him was to get help instead of doing that to you. Um, although I think he was, uh, a child when he did it to you as well. So, um, I'm sure it was done to him. Anyway. He's been emotionally abused. Told my parents about feeling like I was a girl. They said I was wrong and did not talk about it. After that, I would get into trouble for doing or playing anything girly. I learned how to wear this boy costume and started daydreaming to escape. Also had to watch my parents scream and yell at one another every weekend until I moved out. It got bad in my younger brother and I never knew when it would start or why. They never got physical, but yelled loud enough that we could hear them down the block. My mom would tell us how awful my dad was whenever he was at work and treated me like her partner. She never left him for, quote, us, even though we begged her to go. Any positive experiences? They are my parents, so I do have good memories, but I try to stay away from them as much as possible. I do still love them, but I can't be around them anymore. Darkest Thoughts I wish I would get cancer or into an accident and lose my penis and balls. I think that would be easier than telling my wife what I truly am. I dread that day. Darkest Secrets I have used my wife's makeup when she was gone. She realized that someone used it and blamed my daughter. I was ashamed to admit that it was me and let her punish my daughter. It wasn't bad, but I still feel horrible that I let her blame my 13-year-old daughter for something I did. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Being with a woman while I was a woman. Girl-on-girl porn is the only way I can get off. When I do have sex, I have to imagine myself as a woman or it won't work. I feel like a liar and bad husband. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could tell my wife why I've been so miserable the last couple of years. It's not her or the kids. I just hate my body and the way I have to pretend I'm something I'm not. What, if anything, do you wish for? That my wife and kids would love and be with me, even if I were to transition. Have you shared these things with others? Not yet. This is really the first time I've told anyone. I'm scared I will lose everything and everyone I love. How do you feel after writing these things down? Sad. It's hard writing down all the ways I am lying to my family. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Get help as soon as you can. The dysphoria doesn't go away ever. It's better to do something about this before getting a family and risk losing them over it. That is one of the most moving things I have read in the five years of of doing this podcast. I don't, I don't even know, you know, I don't even know what to say because um, 
I understand how scared you must be. But you got to be you. You got to be you. And I think anybody that loves you, truly loves you, would accept you for who you are. And if they can't, to me, that's not love. That's my two cents. But oh, you're, you're, that sadness that you have, of course you are. I mean, of course you are. Oh, buddy. But reach out. Don't, don't hold all of this in by yourself. You know, I know there are support groups um, for people who are uh, afraid to come out of the closet about being trans or whatever it is that they're afraid to express. But um, my heart goes out to you. My heart goes out to you. And you know what? Um, I think you should go in the forum and post on the forum and uh, start opening up to, to people there because you can do it anonymously. And um, I think that would be a great f- tiny little first step to um, be comfortable talking about it. I can't imagine how how hard, how hard that conflict has to be. This is a happy moment filled out by Kirsten. And she writes, It was a normal Saturday and I had gone downtown to do some shopping. I don't remember my particular mood that day, but usually when I shop, I'm completely inside my own head and don't notice the people around me. At some point, the shopping street intersects with the road and there's a crosswalk. While waiting for a green light, I notice a girl in the crowd on the other side. She's one of those girls with red lipstick and great fashion sense, and she's looking right at me. We get eye contact, and she smiles a little. I try not to blush. Is she flirting with me? Me? The light turns green, and everybody starts walking. We walk past each other, and I've never seen her since. I'm not even sure I'd recognize her, but for those 10 seconds while I waited for a green light, I felt seen. For a brief moment, I was totally present. I felt connected to the world and to another person. It's something so little as eye contact and a smile, but I will never forget it. That's so beautiful, and it's so—it's such a great reminder that it's just really about being present and just dealing with what's right in front of us. And, and we get all these great moments when we remember to do that, but... God, this myth that the future is going to be when things will, will, uh, you know. We gotta, we gotta try to find it here. We gotta try to find it here. I struggle with that, man. I just, you know, if I can just get back, back to my iPad and play Scrabble, you know, this discomfort I'm feeling will go away. Yeah, and sometimes just. You know, I'll be at the coffee house where I go and work, and I and sometimes I'll just put my laptop down, and I'll just notice, I'll just look at, you know, the a plant or, you know, the wood trim around the edge of a, you know, the menu board or somebody's shoes, and and just uh, 
forget that that all we ever have is this this moment, this present moment right now. This is from the um, being hospitalized survey, and the, actually these next two are, and I just wanted to read them because I, I read them back to back, and I felt like this encapsulates. You know, we've had almost 500 people fill out the being hospitalized survey, and I feel like these two back-to-back completely sum up the breadth of experiences I've read in these surveys. Uh, Emma was hospitalized for suicide attempts, anorexia, bulimia, and self-harm. And describing her experience, it's been so many times, but they all made it worse, especially a certain hospital where I'd been four times. And then the next one was filled out by uh, Blue Jay, who overdosed on every single prescription I had, which was a lot because all my meds had just been filled for a 90-day supply. And describe your experience. I've been hospitalized three times, but the last one was exceptional from the staff to the materials provided during group, uh, group sessions or individual therapy. This is a shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by, um, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to read this other thing. This is an awful moment uh, filled out by Matt. And uh, he writes, years ago, while in the military, I was sent to a five-week school. As I left, my wife told me to not come home after. At school, I ended up chatting with a female classmate who was having similar issues with her marriage. We ended up spending much time together, but nothing sexual happened. A year or so later, I've been transferred to a new unit. While bullshitting with some guys, the woman's name came up. My ADHD brain decided I needed to tell how she wore leopard print panties. We used to run together, and one day I caught a tiny peek. One of the guys looked at me and said, That's my wife. I was so mortified, I couldn't explain myself. About a month later, they were divorced. That's pretty fucking awfulsome. That is pretty fucking awfulsome. Uh... IBC writes about her anxiety. My body sends a rush of adrenaline because it knows I'm in trouble, but it won't tell my brain what's happening. That is so good. Uh, Snapshot from her life. Uh, During a rather intense panic episode, I bit so deeply into my cheek, the tissue was exposed, and I was unable to speak or eat for a week. I had no idea I was doing it at the time because I was so distracted by the panic in my body. Uh, And she'd like to hear an episode with the significant other of an opiate addict. And uh, you should listen to the episode with Ashley Birch. Uh, sadly, her partner um, OD'd, um, but I, th- I, I, um, I think nonetheless it would, uh, it would still be uh, pertinent to anybody who has a partner with an opiate addiction. And, and it's just a great episode. Um, the Chicken Little uh, writes about her depression diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder i feel like i am my own suicide bomber a snapshot from her life 
In 2012, my assassins had infiltrated my mind and took it over, convincing me to kill myself by overdosing on drugs. I called the crisis line uh, pleading for help. I was rushed to a small community hospital where everything I saw was expanding and contracting and I lost consciousness. From there, I was airlifted to the nearest city hospital where it took the emergency doctors five minutes to revive me from near death. I woke up five days later in the cardiac unit and realized that I was still alive. I cried out, I wish I was dead over and over again, as the thought of dealing with my illness anymore was too overwhelming to handle. I can't imagine. Well, hopefully, um, I'm hoping that you're you're feeling better and, and you found some meds that um, help, help stabilize you. I have a friend who has schizoaffective disorder, and I'm hoping to get him on the podcast. And... Um, He's gone through quite uh, quite the struggle with uh, finding the right meds, but I tell you this much, when he's off them, um, he tells me the paranoia is just unbelievable, and he knows that it's his brain telling him, you know, he knows that it's not real, but it's so real that his body, his body reacts. Um, thank you for calling. Please hold. It's a great name. Writes about... Uh, uh, they're agender, and they write about their codependency. I accidentally cut off some guy on my way to the animal shelter to volunteer, and he honked at me, flipped me off twice, and yelled, fuck you, bitch. I better go home and cry instead, because somebody I will never meet in person thinks I'm a bitch. Um, snapshot from your life. Feeling miserable and hopeless at work one night and trying to stave off the suicidal feelings with mindless TV documentaries about serial killers. It actually worked because my ideation was temporarily derailed by the thought that Bernice Warden's entire head in a burlap sack would be a fucking terrible band name. <laughs> I wonder if that was uh, Edmund Kemper. If that was the serial killer you were watching on, that for some reason that rings a bell. I find uh, documentaries about serial killers to be incredibly um, soothing, and I hate to admit that, but something about it, something about their darkness calms me down. Um, any comments to make the podcast better? I heard you send hugs by jet and carrier pigeon. Can you send naps as well? We do send naps, but they have to be refrigerated. And um, a lot of times, uh, then they need to be thawed. And the people that get them are already tired. So um, waiting around for it to thaw. We're going to have to rethink uh, how we send out naps. I really, I should have thought through more thoroughly. Um you know what? We could send them by a uh, Roman-era chariot. That might work. I'm going to have to get back to you on that. Uh, this is a portion of a survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Big Tallulah. And she writes, My spouse is a trans man. I've kept a lot of nude pics of him from before the transition when we were young perky-titted lesbians having a great time. I said I destroyed them because it causes him so much distress to see his body the way it was before. This is my darkest secret because it feels like such a betrayal. I keep those images of her and think about them constantly. It feels like I'm cheating on my husband with the ghost of my wife. She was perfect and beautiful. I can't imagine how, uh, how new all of these 
challenges, emotional challenges must be. Um, and then I thought this was such a beautiful moment. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? She had a, a biological dad who was a total dick uh, to her and uh, and then a stepfather um, who is a good guy. And what, if anything, would you like to say to someone? She writes, I would love to be able to tell my dad, my stepdad technically, that he's my hero. Uh, here was this young guy with a kid of his own and he takes on the train wreck that was my mother and her kids and we were angry and fucked up kids he was patient he tried his best to make us feel loved and accepted which was pretty fucking good considering his upbringing and he worked his ass off to provide us with everything we needed big displays of emotion made him very nervous and the idea of making anyone I love uncomfortable makes me extremely anxious. The closest I came to telling him how much he means to me was when we recently saw my bio dad at Target. An upgrade dad, stepdad, suggested going to say hi to my, quote, father. So I turned to my dad, stepdad, looked him in the eye and said, hi. He got misty-eyed, and then I needed to take an anti-anxiety pill. That is so beautiful. I could have ended the podcast on that one. This is a shame and secret survey, and this one's uh, this one's pretty heavy. Um, but I really wanted to. Uh, it's also got some really beautiful. Um, just stop fucking qualifying it and read it. This is filled out by Blab Town, and uh, let's see. She is pansexual in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Um, actually, uh, what gender are you other? And then uh, they just put complicated. I'm sorry. Uh, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, they're in their 20s. Uh, they were the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. When I was 19, I was drunk a lot of the time. It so happens that I was raped by a series of men, and then in parentheses they put deep breath, who would be identified as black. I'm so fucking mindful of anti-blackness that I haven't admitted this to anyone. Rape takes so many shapes. I am incredibly ambivalent towards this tangled power relation, given I am mixed uh, Latina, white, and middle class. But my... Oh, I, I'm sorry, Latin X. I didn't know. I thought that was a typo, and then I realized um, without a specific gender, of course, it would be Latin X. Um, I'm mixed Latin X, white, and middle class, but my rapist made a piece of me, and now I am hurting incredibly and simultaneously denying myself this pain. I only came out as a survivor last year, and I'm 25. There are layers of feel, fear. I feel so frightened of having sex and most uh, intimacy. I'm frightened of perpetuating anti-blackness. I'm scared of being too fucked up to decolonize my body. You know, I thought about this one a lot, and I and I thought it's not racism if if what happened to you if there are triggers to it. You know, people can be triggered by um, a song, um, uh, something visual. Um, a noise, um, and that is a part of your story. 
you're clearly not somebody that that has become anti-black because this happened to you. It's just a part of what happened to you. And and I just think that's a really important distinction um, if that's a trigger for you. Uh, so moving on. Uh, she's never been physically abused. I'm sorry. They've never been physically abused. Uh and not sure if they've been emotionally abused. I was smacked some as a child, which I don't see as abusive. It was mostly moving countries a lot, which fucked with me and my parents not talking about. However, when I was of a certain age, I can't remember, I had quite a bad bout of constipation, which still, which required a parent uh, to insert a suppository in me, and they would do it without my consent. Totally humiliating. Still is when I think about it. My shitting was problematic for my family. How deeply shameful. My body has brought me deep shame for as long as I can remember. Darkest thoughts. I am ashamed constantly by my physicality, that my muscles are tight, that I'm making noise or wearing clothes. I think about having sex with my friends, though I'm definitely not into having sex at the moment. I can't tell them this because social rules don't permit. I lovingly fantasize about going down on a particular friend so she comes in my mouth and have been cultivating this fantasy since I met her. My mind works in pictures. I can see this in my brain clear as day. The image crops up when I spend time with her. Darkest secrets. I had an orgasm one time. I was being raped. I remember it perfectly because it was the first orgasm I had with someone else present. The thought is chilling. This thing about me is what makes me broken when it comes to loving someone. I know it. You, you are not broken. You are wounded, but you are not broken. And as I've said many times on this podcast, that is a super common physical response uh, to things happening. And I had an erection when my mom gave me a bath that felt really sketchy. I was too old. It shouldn't have happened. I was like 12. And that's how my body responded. And I blamed myself for years. I felt like I was a fucking monster. And I let it go about two, three years ago. And um, it's... It's, um, it is a, it, I'm not saying that it happened isn't fucking terrible, um, that that's the first orgasm you experience with somebody, but I just want to let you know that that is a really common thing and a lot of people hold on to that shame when they don't need to. So, um, sending you lots, lots of love, um, Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Either my ex falling back in love with me and teasing a long, slow, blended orgasm out of my dripping cunt as she sits on my face, or being indiscriminately fucked by a large reptile with teeth and wings and claws like Satan's in Satan's and Rosemary's baby. A cool, scaly nine inch cock making my cunt ache as much as it gets me soaked. The reptile knows my clit well. I feel bizarre. Oh, how does sharing that make you feel? I feel bizarre and sleazy and wet. Well, then you're doing it right. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want a boyfriend to save me from this lonely worthlessness. I want to escape to a simple fictional realm where we don't have to eat. My skin and hair are perfect 24-7, and there is a soft young man, 21-plus years, who listens and kisses me gently all over. I wish for this boy and I to develop such trust that we pierce each other. Best of all, since it's fictional, I don't actually exist. My ideal, to be honest. Have you shared these things with others? Their shame and wanted 
to be fucked to and wanted to fuck my ex or Satan or the savior knight or, uh, archetype. I'm supposed to reject patriarchal relations and be my own best friend or something. Now, fuck should. You know, there is no should when it comes to what turns us on. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like I would share this with a partner if I found another morbid asshole like me. I feel aroused and tired. Uh, Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Ouch, ouch, ouch. I'd like to share a hug and a horror movie with you. I'd like to share non-sexualized body heat and safe squeezes. There are more of us who are the sensitive. It can't be wrong. We're capable of loving each other. And then she put a, a heart, a heart thing. That really moved me. Thank you for sharing that. And I hope, um, I hope you're getting help for that trauma because that is a lot. That's a lot of... Uh, that's a lot of feelings on your plate. And um, I hear great things about the, uh, the Rape and Incest National Network, R-A-I-N-N.org. So um, if you haven't, you might, you might think about contacting them. And then uh, we have a happy moment, two happy moments to end on. Uh, the first one is from Alicia, and she writes, I have had anxiety issues my entire life, and they started when I was pretty young. Most of my anxiety centered around a phobia of vomiting. So when I was younger, feeling just a little bit sick would really get me going. When I was about nine years old, I was returning to school after having the stomach flu, already pretty shaken up from dealing with being anxious as well as sick. I think I was out of school for almost a week because of the whole ordeal. I remember walking up the stairs into the tiny portable where the classroom was, and as soon as I walked through the door, a friend of mine jumped up in the middle of class and hugged me. Soon, all of my friends and classmates were in on it, and I was out—I was at the center of a very large group hug. God, this sounds fake, even as I'm writing it but it is still one of my favorite childhood memories. For a little kid trying to figure out why I felt so wrong, it meant the world to me. That's so fantastic. Thank you for that. And then, you know I love the... the, the um... Why do I have to qualify every... Because I'm so afraid you're judging me. <laughs> Does it ever end? Will I ever get to a place where I'm like, okay, I'm enough. They're not going to pick this apart. I'm so terrified of criticism. Um, This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Paint It Black. And she writes, um, in parentheses, kind of long. I've worked a retail job with a higher-end clientele for about six years, and as a naturally introverted person, it is a challenge. While I am allowed to somewhat be myself in my sales and interactions, dealing with rich, entitled shitheads for 40-plus hours a week uh, is draining, given the expected level of customer service and emotional labor. Not everyone was terrible. Usually people were demanding, in a hurry, condescending, or plain rude. At best, they were blindly self-involved. I got used to not being thanked and that people just take and take and take. So I learned to keep up my emotional walls at work and to protect my energy and myself. 
A few months ago, I was zipping around the store on a busy day when a woman stopped me. I assumed she wanted something of me, so I put on a smile and prepared. She asked who did my arm tattoo, which was peeking out from under my short sleeve, and wanted to see the rest. Startled, I showed her, and she then shared a story of her friend who was struggling with breast cancer but wanted to get a tattoo if she made it to remission. Uh, maybe the woman just seemed plain nice, but I almost immediately felt at ease talking to her. I gave her my artist, a woman who, uh, woman, which is what her friend wanted, and said, uh, I'd seen a gorgeous photo of a woman with a tattoo cascade of cherry blossoms over where her breast was and heard of women getting artwork instead of reconstructive surgery. She kind of teared up and told me she loved the idea that she was scared for her friend, how she'd be with her throughout the treatment, and that researching tattoos was to keep her friend motivated. I got teared up too and asked if I could hug her. So we hugged in the middle of a busy aisle. I told her what a great friend she was, and that I'm sending her and her friend positive energy. When we parted, she said she was really touched, wanted to know my name, and told me how much she appreciated me, and we were meant to meet. It felt so good. I'm getting teary writing this months later. I've since moved to a different position and don't really interact with customers directly, but I still think of this woman and her friend. I never got their names, but I hope her friend is in remission and on her way to owning a beautiful healing piece of art that celebrates her struggle and her health. What a beautiful friendship they must have. You always talk about connecting and being vulnerable. It, was, it has made me try to remember, but often I can't think of anything. Right now, I'm in therapy for depression and anxiety, and I'm really trying to be present and aware, especially of the happy moments. My former best friend told me I wasn't trying hard enough not to be depressed, and even though I am better off without a judgmental, toxic, quote, friend, I miss what my closest friendship, and I miss what was my closest friendship, and fear I'll never connect again with someone, but in a healthy way. When I felt so comfortable with a woman I just met, and dropped all my protections. It felt so real and so fucking human for once. Uh, I wish I were able to see her again, thank her, and hopefully hear good news about her friend. And I'm grateful to you for prompting me to remember what could have been just another day at work. Now, the reason I wanted to read that is because at the end, I get a shout out. I get the credit. And if it's not about me, it's not a happy moment. It is such a beautiful, the, the, the vignettes of your lives that you guys share, I know I say this all the time, but it's just, it, it, it just, just blows me away. It hurts my heart and it fills my heart. It's like a, uh, trying to think of something that would squeeze the air out of something and then pump it back into it. Uh, I think I'm tired. Um... Well, if you're out there and you're and you're struggling, um, I hope this lasts however many minutes. How long have we been going? 137 minutes. I hope you heard something that clicked. If you're afraid to ask for help, I hope you heard something that nudged you a little closer to either asking for help or speaking your truth. Uh, there's a woman who's, who said, I, I, I can't remember who it was. It was many years ago, but... Uh, uh, she said, speak your truth even if your voice shakes. And um, yeah, there's a lot of surveys tonight where um, people are on that verge of, of speaking their truth and want to speak their truth. 
and um, it's the scariest thing in the world, but it's um, I would be dead if I hadn't spoken my truth. And um, I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad I'm here because I get to experience looking somebody else in the eye and saying, I've been there and, and you can you can get through this. I know you can. And uh, sometimes that almost makes it like a gift. Sounds a little uh, like I might be spinning that, but it's kind of a beautiful gift and terrible wrapping paper. <laughs> Trauma and, uh, and mental illness and addiction. But um, just remember that you're not alone. You never were and you never have to be. And uh, thanks for listening. Oh, and Herbert's butthole says hello. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.